I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter. If you'll read along silently as I read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Our hope this morning is that we'll see the certain spiritual growth and obedience to Jesus Christ in his chosen, persecuted, and scattered children so that we ourselves will rest in his grace and his peace to do the same. That's really what we want. We don't read the Bible exclusively for the purpose of understanding the history the narrative record of the scripture, we do it for that, certainly. We want to know the truth of how things have unfolded in God's redemptive plan. But that's not the only reason we read scripture. We read scripture to be changed by the word. That the Holy Spirit would do a work in us as we examine what he has said in his word. And frequently, if we will look faithfully and honestly and attempt to read this through the eyes, through the mindset, through the ears of the original reader, the original listener, then we have hope that we will understand what God actually intended rather than trying to make it relativistic for our day, contextualizing it so that it fits our culture. There's no call in Scripture to do anything like that. The call in Scripture is to teach it for what it is, to rightly divide the word. There's nothing, there's no essence, there's no hint of this idea of making it fit your mindset. It's actually easy to do that because you use your own vocabulary. I have roughly the same vocabulary. We live in the same culture. We live in the same context. And so when we have a conversation, we're talking the same language. The hope is that that language would not only be sprinkled by, but it would be saturated with biblical language. How do we do that? We must understand it as the original reader understood it. But as we look at this text this morning, there are things that I think will be helpful to you and me because they're all in the text. Elements that I think are crucial to understanding what Peter is attempting to communicate to us here. Really, this is still introductory. This is a greeting, in fact. What Peter has to say here is, in a sense, hello. You know, he's, he's wanting to endear himself to the readers, and he does so with a, a formalized greeting, but then he gives some doctrine in that greeting. It's really interesting how he does this. It's really not even a sentence. I don't know if you notice that or not, but, but it's, it's a greeting. It's a salutation. And in that salutation, he somehow, I, I think with some level of genius, wiggles in some really, really important doctrine so that the people to whom he writes who are about to undergo great trial will be encouraged and strengthened and prepared to undergo that trial in a way that honors the Lord. I want to talk a little bit about the authorship of the book. And you say, well, that's simple. Peter wrote it. Well, you believe that, and I believe that, and that's certainly true. But there are those in liberal circles that have impact on those in not-so-liberal circles when they start asking questions. And I think it's important for you to be able to, to answer those questions. For the person who is maybe a, a new believer, a person who really has a, a somewhat of a negative perspective on the church, 
and they're catching wind of liberal writers who are saying things like, well, Peter didn't write the book of 1 Peter. Why do you think that? And your only answer is, well, it says that he did. Uh, you're not going to be real helpful to that person. So I want to help you and I want myself to be prepared to answer questions lovingly and graciously to those who would cast a shadow of doubt on what we believe and, and why we believe it. As I said, the book itself displays the fact that Peter the Apostle is the author. And you might be thinking, that's enough for me. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And for many Christians, that's a reality in their mind right up until the end of verse 1 where Peter rests in the doctrine of election to provide comfort for the reader. They're perfectly willing to say, the Bible says that Peter wrote it, I believe it, but when it comes to the doctrine of election, that mindset completely changes, usually for those in that category. So again, I want to provide some evidence that I think will be helpful to you in your willingness to minister to those who want to believe that Peter didn't write it. So many people will say, we read the Bible and we believe it, and they do they do with a far greater devotion to convenience and personal experience. If it's conveniently and comfortably uh, seeming to support what they want to believe, they agree with it. If their experience confirms it, they insist that it is true while even requiring others to believe that it is true. But when the truth of the scripture attacks their pride, their convenience, their comfort level, and personal achievement, they oddly become equally opposed and even on the attack against what the Bible clearly teaches. You don't want that to be you, but you do want to be the person who is ready and able and graciously willing to minister to those of that mindset. So let's look a minute at the matter of authorship of the letter. Why is it questioned? Well, number one, in chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. So who wrote it? Did Peter write it, or did Silvanus write it? Peter is clear. I wrote it using Silvanus' hand. This is very common. It wasn't unusual then. It's not unusual now for someone to have a secretary, or what would have been referred to then as an amanuensis. As I said, Peter plainly says, I have written to you through him. Many well-known writers use this method, and it was common practice then. The second argument is that the Attic Greek is too sophisticated for a Galilean fisherman. Not really. This is not the most pristine of written Greek. It's excellent Greek. It's well written and it's easy to read. It's easily translated into English because of that. But the Jewish historian Josephus writes with much greater skill and eloquence. And he's not alone. There are many well-known Greek authors to whose writings you would look. And if you were a Greek scholar, you would say, yeah, this is... This is much more golden and pristine than the writing of the book of 1 Peter. Natives of Galilee were typically bilingual, speaking Greek and Aramaic. The language and grammar of 1 Peter is excellent, but it's no more so than you would expect of someone who is simply doing all that he is doing to the glory of God. And Peter, having grown up in Galilee, was very likely bilingual. It's very likely that Greek was actually his native tongue. So Sylvanus, his native Greek ministry partner, could certainly have helped tighten things up if that were necessary. So that's really not a valid argument. Third argument is that this book is written primarily to the Gentiles. Peter, being the apostle to the Jews, certainly couldn't have written an epistle to the Gentiles. But this is not even a true statement. Paul referred to Peter as the apostle to the Jews, 
but can he not minister to the Gentiles just as Paul did to the Jews? The reality is, is as we look into our text this morning, we will see that uh, the, the letter is not strictly written to Jews or Gentiles, it's written to both. And so this also is not a valid argument, the idea that because it's written exclusively to Gentiles, it couldn't have been written by Peter. The fourth argument is this, since the letter seems to be prompted by Christian persecution, and the fact that real Christian persecution didn't take place outside of Rome until 64 AD, when Peter died in Rome, it must have been written after his death. Uh, this also really doesn't hold any water. Uh, the fact is that the letter is clearly written to those who will be persecuted. They're undergoing some level of persecution, but not to the degree that it's going to happen. There's no mention of Nero and his burning of Rome and his persecution of Christians in the text. Some have said that uh, Nero prompted the writing of the book in his persecution of Christians, but the accurate dating of the book has it closer to 64 AD, and therefore uh, there would be no reason to, to think that the book was written as a response. Peter died in 64 AD, so the argument is that he couldn't have written it because the persecution in Rome didn't take place until that year and shortly thereafter. Well, again, that's not a good argument because the essence of the book is not that it is simply or strictly written to those who are going through great persecution right now. It's preparation for that persecution. So the fact that the burning of Rome and the persecution of Christians in Rome and other areas didn't take place until uh, later is, again, it's not a valid argument. Fifth argument is that the content is so similar to Paul's writing style that it must have been from Paul. Well, there are enough dissimilarities in the writing style that there's no reason to think that Paul wrote it. I, I do want to add one more thing. The testimony of the early church is universal and unanimous. Let me say that again. The testimony of the early church, the first century church and thereafter, is universal and unanimous. There was no dispute with regard to who wrote the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all church fathers, and then Eusebius, church historian, all agreed with no dispute and no question that Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. And besides that, we mainly lean on internal evidence. Mostly what I've given you up to this point is what we would refer to in scholarly uh, venues as external evidence. But again, you don't want to be the person who somewhat wooden-headedly says, well, I just believe it because the Bible says it, because you will come across things in the Bible that you don't believe uh, if you fall into that category. And so the challenge then is to genuinely look at the tools that the Lord has graciously provided for us so that we can respond to the naysayers, to those who say, well, clearly it wasn't written by Peter. But again, ultimately for us internally, and especially uh, internally within the body of Christ, we encourage each other with this reality. It is enough for us to know that Peter the Apostle wrote the epistle that bears his name because of the internal evidence in the Word of God. It is in the author's beginning salutation that he credits himself for its authorship. Why is that enough for us but not for others? Spiritually speaking, it's because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. 
yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the word of God. We have the mind of Christ insofar as the Lord determined to give it to us in his word. And therefore, because the Spirit of God indwells us, he interprets his word for us as he dwells within us. He gives us the right understanding of the word, but it's not mystical, it's not magical. This is why there are disagreements within the body with regard to interpretations. So what do we do with that? We study hard. We look closely at the tradition of the true church. What has the church always believed? And we work hard to understand the languages in which the Bible was written. It's important. There must be those who study the languages because things do get lost in translation, as you will see in our text today. So the purpose and theme, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that really is the intended purpose in Peter's heart, that you and I would stand firm in God's grace, particularly as God's grace is displayed in his letter. He makes this statement at the end of having repeatedly expressed God's grace time and time again, showing how God's grace is manifest in the lives of the church. And so he says, stand firm in it. I've written briefly, it's a short letter, but my purpose in writing it to you is as a testimony to the grace of God. And now this command, stand firm in God's grace. This is really a quite concise and explosive attack on legalism. I don't mean the letter itself, but this statement itself, the person who leans on a personal decision for Christ, the person who leans upon his activity, leans on his performance. He says, well, I've done well this week. That really flies in the face of Peter's comment here that you would stand firm in God's grace. It's not unusual that someone will stand firm in their conduct. Look at what I'm doing. How, how come no one else is doing what I'm doing? Without any sensitivity toward what the Spirit of God is doing in other believers. The text says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this person, Peter, was an inquisitor. He was a question asker and he was a statement maker. He had no hesitation about saying what he thought and asking what others thought. He was also the speaker for the apostles. In every list of the apostles throughout the scripture, Peter is always mentioned first. He's the leader, undisputably. It's uh, in his DNA that he would be a leader of men. This is something that I pray for my boys every night. I pray that they would be men among men, that they would be leaders among leaders, that God would use them to humbly and graciously and gently and lovingly give off such an aura of the person of Jesus Christ that men would be compelled to follow them. This is the Great Commission, that we would be involved in discipleship. Peter was a man who was involved in men's lives. I recall not too many months ago where a man was expressing interest in our church, and he said, well, yeah, you guys are that discipleship and all that. You know, just so you know, I'm not into the men thing. And I said, well, Jesus was into the men thing. And so we will always be into the men thing. We are about discipleship. Peter was about discipleship. He was about being involved in men's lives. He embraced Jesus' willingness to disciple him, and he was willing to disciple others. This is how Christianity is promulgated. It's how it is perpetuated. As I said, Peter was the speaker for the group. He, in fact, was the loudspeaker for the group. 
His name is mentioned more times than any other person in the New Testament except for the Lord himself. Peter was a married man, according to Matthew 8, verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. You can't have a mother-in-law without having a wife, right? Or at least initially. Peter was married, and that's disputed in the Catholic Church. No, no, Peter was the first pope. He was never married. The Bible says he was. Peter was a fisherman, as you know. He was not only a fisher of fish, he was a fisher of men. And uh, this is how he is known to us to this day. In Matthew 16, verse 13, we read an interesting fact about Peter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is not something that Jesus himself had said to Peter. Peter had assessed the reality that the Son of the living God was coming, and he determined that he was the Son of the living God, the Christ. In John chapter 6, in verse 65, we read, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You see how the doctrine of election has a repulsive impact on people throughout all the ages. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. So in the midst of one of the hairiest doctrines known throughout the history of the Christian church, Peter doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain. Well, how can that be? That's not fair. He says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In John chapter 13, verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, Peter was bold. He wanted to understand what the Lord was saying, but sometimes he went further than what the Lord said, and the Lord had to restrain him and bring him back. Give me men like that. Give me men who will follow the Lord with a passion and even sometimes inadvertently run so quickly and head over heels that there needs to be some degree of restraint doctrinally. Matthew 14, verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Peter is criticized because he, he abandoned the faith, apparently, in the moment. But, you know, you want to ask, how many people do you know who've gotten out of the boat and walked on the water? Peter's faith was bold, and it was deeply dependent upon the person of the Lord. And yes, in the moment, he, he had a moment of weakness, but he, he, he recalibrated, and he said, Lord, save me. Who knows what was going on in Peter's mind? Perhaps we could speculate that he began to think, wow, look at me. I'm walking on water. And that lack of faith in Christ and faith in himself was perhaps, again, I don't know, but the, the reality is we do know this, his faith returned to the Lord. Lord, save me. 
In Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Huh? Really? Yeah, he'd gotten a little too comfortable. Jesus had become his co-pilot, obviously. He, maybe he developed that bumper sticker. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's quite an accusation. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And people will say Satan can have no influence on the believer. Well, clearly here he had an influence on an apostle to the degree that Jesus so boldly exposed the reality that Satan was involved. He even called Peter Satan. In Matthew 17, verse 1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What are you talking about, Peter? Why in the world would you do that? Well, because in Peter's mind, this was the sin quanon of life. This was the deal. This was ultimate joy, ultimate happiness, ultimate spiritual reality. Here I am with the Lord and with two patriarchs. Why would I ever want to leave? Let's just stay here. The Lord's work, as you know, was not done. Matthew 18, 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? See, Peter was willing to ask the hard questions. There's a limit, right? There's a point at which I'm not responsible to forgive. And as you know, Jesus equates the believer with the forgiver. The person who refuses to forgive is not a Christian. Uh, on the other hand, Jesus helps Peter to understand this reality. You're looking for a, you're looking for a, a line in the sand that once someone has crossed it, you no longer need to forgive. Jesus says 70 times 7. But again, my point here is that Peter was bold. He was willing to ask the difficult questions that would expose the condition of his heart. Matthew 19, verse 27 then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Peter doesn't mind asking the question, I've given up everything, what's going to happen to me? Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. And as you know, the Lord's prophetic words came true, and Peter denied him three times that night. Peter was weak. 
He was bold. He was the spokesperson. He was willing to ask the difficult questions. He was willing to make the difficult statements. And he was frail. In John 18, verse 10, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And let me just assure you that Peter was not trying to remove the man's ear. He was trying to cut his head off with a blade not worthy of doing so. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So again, Peter, guided but misguided. Bolstered but not so certain about reality in some cases. Some would say his heart was in the right place, but it certainly needed some redirecting. And this, I think, would be true. In John 20, upon hearing that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, he and John ran to see. <laughs> is it true? If he is alive, if he is gone, if he has taken his body, whatever it is, I want to know. In John 21, 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. You know that I like you. You know that I love you, he said to him. Tend my lambs, he said to him again a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And though Peter seemingly intentionally missed the point by responding with a word that doesn't mean what Jesus was asking, he was answering a question that Jesus wasn't asking, he ultimately got the point, and he became one who tended the sheep. He became one who was willing to be criticized for his willingness to shepherd the flock. In fact, he was willing to give his life for the flock. In Acts 1 and 2, it is Peter who delivers the word at Pentecost, and again in Acts 3, and people were amazed with his preaching. In Acts 4.13, we read, Now as they observed confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see, this is what a man of God ought to be known by, not for his scholarly ability. People ought to be thinking and saying about him, this is a guy, this is a man who has been with Jesus. And this was what he was known by. In Acts 5, verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, to a man who by all rights was well-known and well-respected in the community, but he had lied to God. And so Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You see, it's a man who walks with Jesus. It's a man who has confidence in the work of the Spirit of God, who is willing to address a man for what he really is. He's willing to say to him what he really needs to hear. And so he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Ananias had no good answer, and God killed him. Further in verse 8, and Peter responded to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And she died. And some people wonder why we're so serious about the Lord's table, which tells us that, tells us that there are those who have become sick and they've died. And Peter was willing to be the man who would say the difficult things and confront the difficult people. In Acts 5, facing his own death in verse 29, we read, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Again, this is in the face of being stoned to death, the threat of it. Acts 8, verse 20, But Peter said to him, Speaking to Simon the magician, who believed, he was not a believer, but he believed the truth of the gospel. He probably could have repeated some of the tenets of the gospel. He even wanted to follow him around. Peter says to him, you know, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter raised a little girl from the dead, a little girl named Tabitha, brought her to life. Today, in our culture, the culture of Christendom, would be appalled at the fact that there are those who declare themselves to be apostles. Not only because they can't resurrect someone from the dead, but because they say they can and pretend that they have, among other false miracles that they claim to perform. Peter actually performed miracles, literally. He did things, the Lord used him to do things that defied natural reality. Peter was arrested. He was arrested unto a hopeless circumstance, but freed by an angel. When he went to be with other believers, they couldn't believe it. The Lord had used him to prove his greatness, to prove the Lord's greatness by removing him from a situation where he himself couldn't have removed himself, but the Lord proved himself to be good. So this is Peter. This is the author. This is the man whose letter we're going to spend the next many months together looking at. It's important that we know his character. It's important that we know that he was a fisherman, a man who really came from humble means and humble circumstances and yet was used greatly by the Lord. He's a man who failed. He failed miserably, and it's on record for all the world to see. And he, and he did it three times in a row in probably less than an hour failed other times, and the scripture records that. But as I said, his name is mentioned more than anybody else in the New Testament, except for the Lord himself. <laughs> Interestingly, Peter, having become known as the man with a foot-shaped mouth, he also is known as the man who is, in fact, a leader among leaders. So there's hope for you. There's hope for me. The Lord would, despite our weaknesses and our failings, use us majestically and magnificently in the lives of others. I told you that there would be elements in this text that we would look at together, and I believe that they're all important. The first of those is this word, sent. The word apostle means sent one. It means messenger. Specifically in this case, obviously, it means one sent by Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is one of the distinct characteristics of the apostles of the New Testament. They were literally called by Jesus himself directly. The man today who claims to be an apostle is a liar. He's a liar. He is not called by Jesus Christ directly himself. 
he might have called himself. See, this is one of the major distinctions between sound, legitimate Christian theology given to us in his word and that which comes from experience. Peter, as you know, did not lean on experience. In 2 Peter chapter 1, perhaps one day we'll look at this in detail together. In 2 Peter chapter 1, after reminding the reader of this great experience, and he does it very briefly and very, very concisely, uh, of his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says nothing about it. He, he gives absolutely zero elaboration. And then he says, but we have the more sure prophetic word. That's what chapter 1 of Second Peter is about. It's about the sufficiency of the Scripture, that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the Word. It's the theme of that chapter. Why, then, does he throw in that little experience when he gives absolutely no expression or reason for why he delivers it, and it has nothing to do with the context? I believe that he does it so that you and I would not rest in our experience, but that we would rest exclusively in the Word. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says that Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonarges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So these were the original 12 apostles. That was it. As you know, Judas went apostate. He was an unbeliever and dwelt by Satan. He was replaced by Matthias. There were others who served in apostolic efforts but they did not serve in the apostolic office. They were not apostles. Those men are Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, a handful of others. They're listed at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. These were simply serving as sent ones or apostles in the sense of being messengers in the moment. But there were only specific men who served in the office of apostle, the twelve. And then, as you know, there was Paul commissioned by the Lord Jesus directly or personally in Acts chapter 9. And that's it. The Lord used the apostles to establish the foundation of the church according to Ephesians 2.20, and you don't lay a foundation year after year after decade after decade after century after century. The foundation was laid once by the apostles once, and when the apostles died, there are no more apostles. And the apostles were confirmed, and their delivery of the word of God was confirmed by the sign gifts. And the reason and the purpose for the sign gifts ceased in that age. There is no reason for the sign gifts today. There's no purpose for them. The purpose was fulfilled in that age. And we have that spoken to us in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, telling us that they will cease. Uh, I noticed online someone the other day saying, if I can find some place in the Bible where it says that the sign gifts have ceased, I will believe it. I say to that person, when Jesus returns, are you going to say, if I can find somewhere in the Bible that Jesus has returned, then I will believe it? You see the parallel in those two things? The person who needs for the Bible to say that, that prophecy has been fulfilled is not willing to believe that it has been fulfilled until new prophecy is given, new revelation is given, and you put it in the Word of God. 
The Bible says the gifts will cease. The record of the Christian church shows that they have ceased. And anything that you see today that seems to be expressive of the sign gifts of the New Testament, any honest, charismatic scholar will tell you that they are not the same. Gordon Fee, one of the most prolific charismatic scholars of our day, whose commentaries, by the way, I use. He's an incredible scholar. He himself confesses the reality that the sign gifts of today are not the same as the sign gifts of the New Testament. Therefore, he is in practice a cessationist. So he believes that whatever the sign gifts were, that they're not being practiced, but somehow something like the sign gifts today is being practiced. And you, you know well that the person who believes that the sign gifts are being practiced today has opened up Pandora's box. Where do you draw the line between what's really of the Lord and what is not of the Lord? I would say we draw the line in the Bible. Well, Peter is a sent one. That was point number one. In this text, what we see, and I would call this point number two, is the scattered. Scattered. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This, is, this word is dispersia. It means aliens or foreigners in the land. These five provinces comprise historic Asia Minor, meaning Asia Lesser. And so you have Asia, and then you have this western protrusion off of Asia that's commonly referred to as Asia Minor. Today, it is modern Turkey. According to J.H. Eliot, this is an area of about 129,000 square miles. 129,000 square miles. A bit less than the size of the state of California, which is about 159,000 square miles. It's roughly 1,000 miles wide east to west and 350 miles long north to south. So if you took California and turned on its side and shrink-wrapped it, you'd have this size area. So that gives you an idea of just how far and wide the dispersia, in this case, these people who were dispersed or scattered, were spread out. It's bordered on the three sides by large bodies of water. But the question is, who are these people who are scattered? Why are they foreigners and aliens? Why are they receiving this letter from Peter? And there's much, much discussion, as I mentioned earlier, about whether or not they were mostly Jews or mostly non-Jews, meaning Gentiles. There was certainly a sizable Jewish population in Asia Minor at the time. But also Asia Minor was a land primarily inhabited by Gentiles. Actually, Asia Minor was known for being remarkably diverse socioeconomically, religiously, ethnically. R.C. Sproul refers to Asia Minor as the backwoods of the Roman Empire. In other words, these cities were not the big metropolis-like areas. They weren't, they weren't well-traveled. Uh, so you had pockets of people all throughout who kind of developed their own uh, microcosmic culture. And so, again, that would cause diversity to thrive. People would be very, very different from each other. Some have insisted that Peter is referring specifically here to Jews alone, scattered by the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. But grammatically, there's no evidence for that. There's no reason for us to think that. It's not in the text. Uh, in the only two New Testament usages of the term dispersia, there is the definite article, the. In John 7.35, the Jews then said to one another, 
Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Jews. So there's the definite article, the, which we believe is, in fact, a reference to those who were scattered by the Assyrian and Babylonian cap- captivities, Jews who were in captivity and then once uh, freed from that captivity. In James 1.1, you have the same definite article. James says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Again, the definite article there. And so this is a particular group of people. So when we see the dispersia here in our text this morning, there's no reason for us to think that he's speaking to any particular group of people, but that it's more of a global or worldwide address to those who are scattered all throughout. Now, we do know, obviously, specifically in the text, that he does send it initially to those in Asia Minor. Scholars have debated this matter. But what we can know for certain is that he is writing to believers who are foreigners in their current residence and that they are chosen of God to be his children. This is what we know. And this should be encouraging for them when they receive the letter. Here we are scattered abroad. Who knows what all they were going through and what they would eventually go through. But the reality is that they are scattered. They are foreigners in a foreign land. In John 15, verse 18, we read, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So there is a sense in which all of us are not citizens of this world. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Peter writes to those who are dispersed, those who are scattered, this letter is not simply for those to whom he originally wrote it. It is for those who will be scattered throughout the world, but who are yet chosen of God. And the letter is a letter of encouragement to stand firm in grace in the midst of trial. So he is sent, he writes to those who are scattered. And point number three, they are secured or secure. They are secured by the Father. We'll see the work of the Trinity in this text. Right now we see the work of the Father. The text says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is the Greek term prognosin, and it's the noun form of a Greek term that that means to assess or to know rightly, to know well. We get our word foreknowledge from this as it's translated in the text in our passage. The root word is prognosis. That's the Greek pronunciation. It's also, as you know, the, the English medical pronunciation of the word. The English medical term helps, but it doesn't give the full idea. Let me explain why. A medical prognosis is an attempt to foresee or predict the likely outcome of one's medical condition. So the prefix pro, the beginning of the term, beforehand translates well. It has to do with that which took place before. The problem is that our English knowledge is a catch-all for numerous Greek terms that mean some variation of knowledge. If the doctor predicted the outcome accurately, we wouldn't say that he actually knew what the outcome would be, only 
that he had some level of knowledge that allowed for a logical prediction that turned out to be accurate. But even if the doctor truly knew exactly what would happen, he would only be omniscient and not sovereign. Amen. You understand that? He, if he knew what was going to happen, he could claim to be omniscient, all-knowing, or at least knowing about what was about to come, but he could not claim to be sovereign and control the matter. And here's where the breakdown comes in the translation. When you read the word foreknowledge, you might automatically think, well, he knew what was about to happen. In English, that would be accurate. In Greek, not so. Let me tell you why. Prognosis is intimate knowledge. It is intimate knowledge. In the case with God's foreknowledge, it is saving knowledge. So it's important to note that omniscience and ordination are very different. Think of omniscience as all knowledge. And think of ordination as all doing or all controlling, all acting. Galatians 4 verses 8 and 9 help immensely with this because this passage uses two different terms that mean knowledge. And like I told you, the, the English term knowledge is a catch-all for many Greek terms that are knowledge, but they are very different in nuance. In Galatians 4 verse 8, Paul says, However, at that time, when you did not know adates, from the Greek term oida, which means knowledge, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. This simply means to be aware. It's what you and I typically think of when we ask the question, well, do you know where that restaurant is? Yeah, I'm aware of where that restaurant is. Well, have you eaten there? Do you love the food there? See, that's a different knowledge. In verse 9, Paul says, but now that you have come to know gnotes, or gnontes, from gnosko, intimate knowledge, for now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, again from gnosko, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And if you remember from our study through the book of Galatians, we pointed out the fact that Paul never wholesale dismisses the people from Galatia as if they're not believers. He says that he's perplexed over the fact that though they knew God because God first knew them, that they've abandoned him. But he never indicates that they are not believers. See, when you were not aware of him, you were slaves to false gods. But now that you know him intimately, or rather are known by him intimately or savingly, how do you enslave yourself to worthless things? That's ultimately what Paul is saying there. And then Matthew 7, verse 23, where Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. This is gnosko. It's actually agnon from gnosko. He edates, from oida, he is aware of all people, and he intimately, savingly knows some. And you know from chapter 1, verse 3, a verse we'll cover Next week, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who causes one to be born again? God does. You don't choose to be born again. In chapter 2, verse 9, 
Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Back to chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says that this has happened to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In chapter 5, verse 13 of 1 Peter, Peter closes with these words, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And so you have the encouragement of the doctrine of election for those who are scattered and destined for suffering. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we see that this is not new in the New Testament. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Isn't it interesting that sandwiched between this reality of the doctrine of election is the fact that there will be those who will grumble against the Lord? And it so frequently is over this reality which makes the believer secure. And the person who is most insecure, and I'm using that in our vernacular, is frequently the one who has no interest in recognizing God's sovereignty. He wants to cling to what he has done. And God's sovereignty, which results in man's security, destroys his pride. It takes away any sliver of evidence that he deserves credit for what has happened in his life. And obviously there are those who will quickly bolt to John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That too is an expression of God's sovereign decree. It does not say that the non-elect can somehow come to the Lord. It's not in the text. People will adamantly and even angrily proclaim, but it says whosoever. And we say yes and keep reading. Whosoever believes the person must be a believer. He must believe in the gospel. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.29 that that belief is granted 
to him. In John 1 verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You say, there it is. They chose to receive him. They chose to accept him. Bible says it. And by the way, in the Greek, it's an active verb. So the person is involved. The person who's growing in their understanding of God's sovereignty and the security that he has in God's sovereignty say, well, well, wait a minute. Are, Are you saying that I'm not involved at all? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, right? In other words, you don't inherit it from your parents, not of the will of the flesh. That's easy because that's a matter of sinful thinking and sinful acting. Uh, Nor of the will of man. So the answer is yes, you had nothing to do with your salvation. Uh, Were you involved? Yes, you were involved at the point where you were caused to be born again. In the moment that you were brought from death to life, you were grateful. And you responded and you said, thank you for giving me grace. And your security rests in what God has done, not what you in your sinful, totally depraved condition wanted to claim you could do. The person who rests in God's regenerative work is the person who reads this passage and finds comfort in it instead of clinging to it for some hope that he might have played some role in bringing himself to Christ. Back to verse 17 of John 3. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So if you believe that the word world means every single person in the world, then you're a universalist. Because Jesus has just said that the world might be saved through him. That's why he came. Does he mean every single person in the world? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Otherwise, every single person in the world would be saved. So there is security in God having chosen those who are scattered. I have three more points, and so I'm going to stop. (laughs) Father, what a privilege. What a privilege. Lord, we want to rest in a sound and biblical awareness of the truth of your word. And Father, I trust that you would make each and every one of us bold in our declaration of truth, that we would be faithful, that we would be gracious, that you would use us as we look to this text in particular, that we would see that what you have accomplished is something that we couldn't. Help us to rest in the reality that a man-centered, man-made theology is one that requires something of mankind that he can achieve. And yet, the doctrines of the Scripture reveal that biblical Christianity requires something of mankind that he cannot achieve. Therefore, he needs a Savior, a sovereign Savior, one who would send apostles to establish the church. At the same time, one who in his sovereign decree would scatter the believers throughout the world that they might exhibit the grace of God to a lost and dying world. I even think of Joseph who, as a believer, experienced trial beyond what any of us might possibly imagine. In and through his experience of being hated and despised and even sold into slavery, left for dead by his brothers, 
The result was that he had a massive evangelistic impact on them, not to mention all those in Egypt. Lord, may that be the case with us. May it be that as we look at ourselves as scattered abroad, really a a small group of people who scattered throughout the Inland Empire and called upon to gather for the purpose of your glory and the equipping of the saints. We want to leave here now and scatter for your glory. Help us to go with confident, bold, gracious orthodoxy that we'd be humble in our living in light of truth not legalistically requiring others to conduct their lives better, but graciously living in light of the kindness that Christ has extended to us, that we who have received compassion would extend compassion to others, that we would find ourselves effective and involved in a lost and dying world, willing to engage in sacrificial ministerial relationships with people who don't know Christ, that as a result, as we would perhaps even experience some degree of suffering that you would use us to rightly and effectively communicate the security that we have in you because you chose us before the foundation of the world. And our great Lord and Father, we ask these things for your glory. Amen.